You're listening to Artists and Hackers, a podcast on art, code, and community. We talk to programmers, artists, educators, and designers in an effort to critically look at online art making and the history of technology and the internet. We're interested in where we've been and speculative ideas on the future. In this season of the podcast, we're working with the Engelberg Center on Innovation Law and Policy at NYU Law. In addition to our usual crop of artists and programmers, we're adding in legal scholars to help us unpack some of the thorny issues for those working in art and code as they unleash their work into the world. We'll also talk to communities aiming to alter the context of how their cultural work is presented. Who can remix? What does the law have to do with cultural appropriation? How are artists hacking copyright? Those are a few of the areas we'll be getting into. I think it's fair to say that most artists and probably most programmers would be really happy to stay as far away from lawyers as possible. But the Engelberg Center is unique. They have people researching and making recommendations about the right to repair movement, working with indigenous and cultural communities to protect cultural heritage, and folks that look at the limits of the current law where it regards artificial intelligence and surveillance. So to kick off the season, I thought it'd be helpful to talk to Michael Weinberg, the director of the Engelberg Center, to get an overview of the center and some of the areas that I thought our listeners would be interested in. I asked about some of the areas we'll be covering in future episodes, such as open source, creative commons, public domain, fair use, and some of the ways that artists have attempted to hack our laws around copyright. In past episodes, we talked about open source, a term originally used for software source code that is shared by its creator and made available for modification and sharing new versions. Open source software is now ubiquitous. It powers much of the technology we use today, and artists and creators became interested in open source as a way to share their own work, to allow others to remix their artwork, and to modify and share it further. And now the borders between artists, programmers, and other categories are falling away. Artists have become tool builders as well. I spoke with Michael about the evolution of open source and other areas where creators embrace or push against the rules of copyright. What does open source mean to you? To be a little bit lawyerly about it, I think it really depends on the context. Because there's certainly a world where open source means openly licensed and creative expression or works that include software and a huge range of other things that are licensed in a way that not only allow other people to build on them and to use them, but encourage them to do so. But I actually think that's a really narrow view of open source. I think more broadly, open source is really about creating as part of an ongoing community dialogue and knowing that you are drawing from that community and the work of so many others before you and that you are intentionally contributing back to that community in the hopes that other people in the community will build on what you have been doing. In my experience, there's many folks coming from an, like an artistic or cultural background. Maybe they start learning to code or, or they're quite advanced in it. They're making software or hardware that's used by a wider community. And in open source, the, the culture and, and very much what you were speaking about is on sharing and making resources available to others. But there can also be a tension point in protecting culture or preventing someone with different values from using code or cultural commons, for example. And I'm curious if this is something you come across in your work and how you're considering this recently. And the tension is, 
when you put something out into the world and invite other people to use it, uh, you invite other people to use it who may not be exactly like you, who may not share your values. And so one of the challenges with open source is coming to terms with that and deciding what you want to do about that. And I think in the earliest days of what you might think of as the formal open source movement, there was a real push towards saying, look, when you put something out in the world in an open way, you're inviting people to use it and you need to be willing to accept the fact that there are going to be people who use it in ways that you don't love and hope that on balance, more people use it in a way that you like than in a way you don't like. But I think that there has been a new wave of interest in revisiting that assumption and that structure and trying to understand if there are ways to work within an open framework, at least an open framework broadly defined, in a way that does bring some of the values questions into the discussion and maybe even put them close to the front of the discussion. One of the things that interests me is as artists and cultural practitioners and theorists and others get involved in maybe this broader community and movement and are creating these alternative things like, for example, the anti-capitalist software license, I'm curious how that kind of goes back and gets reflected in law. I think that this is one of the challenges when you think about open source and licensing and ethics, because if you think about open source licenses as a legal document, then you very quickly get into this conversation of definitions and how you define uh, what is ethically okay, what is ethically not okay. Obviously, that is a debate that philosophers and theologians and all sorts of people have had for millennia. And so it can be hard to reduce that those ideas to an easy to understand legal license. Now, the important thing to recognize is the legal lens isn't the only lens you can use to think about these things, because especially in open source, the licenses act on one level, kind of a legal level, but also they act as a signal. They act on a cultural level to say, hey, I'm putting this out into the world and here are my expectations. Uh, those expectations may or may not be legally enforceable in the way that I believe them to be. But at a minimum, I'm going to use this license structure to communicate something to you, the user, about what I, the creator, would like to have this, this work be used and how it would be used. And so I think it really depends on how closely you want to think about these licenses as legal licenses and how much you want to think about them as cultural statements. And it can create all sorts of problems when people are actually thinking about one way and, and but want to think about it in the other way. But I think the, the kind of honest way to think about it is as these licenses. So Michael mentioned the anti-capitalist software license. So I thought now would be a good time to speak to artists and programmers, the very people that created that license. We interviewed Ramsey Nasser in our first episode of the podcast. Together with Everest Pipkin, they created the anti-capitalist software license. Ramsey's a computer scientist, a game designer, and an educator. And I caught up with him online to ask him a few questions. Okay, so I just wanted to ask, what is a software license for? 
a software license, uh, and I'm not I'm not a lawyer. Um, I happen to be the the son of a lawyer and an intellectual property lawyer of all things. So uh, I'm gonna, I think, bring bring shame upon my family by getting some of this stuff wrong. But um, uh, a software license is a an agreement basically that is attached to software uh, that outlines how uh, it it can be used and and who can use it and under what um, uh, under what conditions. So we've had software licenses for a really long time. And in particular, there's a huge success of the free and open source software licenses. So I was curious, what were the limitations of those that you felt the need to create a new license, which you've done with Everest Pipkin? Yeah, so um, a couple of things. And I've been in the open source world for a very long time. I'm, I'm actually speaking to you off of a Linux desktop that I you know, lovingly maintain. It's it's a world that I'm very sort of it's been a, a big part of my life and I'm very fond of it. I think it's done very good things. What brought me into thinking about the sort of limitations of of the worldview of open source uh, licenses is the sort of the observation that you know we've had open source for like you said for many many years, yet we've had billionaire tech companies rise up not sort of not even in spite of open source software. I think building on open source software. So that's that's the sort of first sort of peculiar observation, right? This movement that to me was pitched as liberatory and emancipatory and designed to like put everyone on the same level is producing pharaohs effectively. So that's the sort of beginnings of my my questionings, I think, of like open source as it's uh, currently defined and, and the licenses as they're currently available. And that sort of inquiry led me towards the ACSL. The reality of its worldview is pretty limited politically to people should share source code. The free software movement enables us to build a world where Microsoft shares more of its source code, which we're seeing it do, right? And Amazon shares more of its source code. It can't move us towards a world where things like Microsoft can't exist. People like Jeff Bezos can't exist. That, that's a non-goal of the free software movement and the open source movement, which increasingly, I think, as we face you know, income and like wealth disparity and climate collapse... It, it is my political be- belief that we need to be actively dismantling capitalism. Um, and the open source movement just does not do that. I think a lot of people think it does. I did for a very long time. It, it tends to get pitched that way. But at the, the bottom line is it's a, it's a worldview of people should share source code. And that's about it. So in terms of intentionality, the ACSL is, uh, was sort of born out of a desire to attach a license to software that we put out into the world that expresses a different worldview with with more, I think, more complete politics around capitalism. I think there'd be a lot of artists and other kinds of cultural workers out there that are really turned off by some of our legal quibbling or discussion here and are probably, you know, maybe are wrong, but are probably thinking like, hey, you know, like art is punk rock. It's DIY. I want to do my thing. And, and then some people even choose something like, you know, I don't want to have a, a legal system in place. I don't want to have to think about this. Can you say a little about what happens by default? I make some artwork, I make a piece of music, I put it out there in the world. If if I make no choice, if I don't actually say, hey, this is copyrighted or this is public domain or this is creative commons, what what actually happens and governs how my work can be used? This is a great question. Sort of, you know, if you if you want to step away and say, I don't want to deal with any of this, I just want to put it out in the world, what happens? And so assuming the thing that we're talking about is in the category of works that are protectable by copyright, and that's basically going to be anything that you think that an artist would make. So those works are, you can think of them as being born closed. By default, the moment they spring into the world, 
they are automatically protected by copyright. Now, there are reasons that you might want to register that copyright, and there are reasons that you might want to put a little copyright notice on them, but none of those are requirements to be protected by copyright. If you make it, if it exists in the world, it's automatically protected by copyright for your entire life plus 70 years after your death. And anyone who wants to make copies of that work, and there are all sorts of ways to think of copies, they need your permission to make those copies or a reason not to need your permission like fair use. And so if you do nothing, then your work is fully protected by copyright and anyone who wants to make use of it is probably gonna have to start by asking you for permission. And that may be totally fine with you, right? If that's what you wanna do, that's what you wanna do. Uh, but if you want other people to engage with your work and maybe build on it or remix it or kind of you know incorporate it into what they are doing, if you do nothing else but put it out into the world, putting a little time bomb in there, you know, some point in the future, someone else might might come in or, or have the rights to your work or, or maybe 40 years after you're dead, somebody comes along and says, oh, there's still 30 years of copyright protection on this. I want to sue you for it. Or, and this is kind of more likely, someone's going to want to use your work and either not be able to get in touch with you or be afraid to reach out or whatever it is and say, well, if I don't have permission to use it, I'm just going to move on to something else. I'm not going to use this work because I need, I know I need permission to do it, either through a copyright license, like a Creative Commons license or something else. And so the default state is will, will be that your work is used less than it would be if you took that, that tiny extra little step and put a license that said, uh, not only am I inviting you to use this work under whatever terms I'm putting it out under, but also I'm giving you legal protection if you do do that and making you a legal promise that I'm not going to kind of appear 10 years later and sue you. Now, let's say I'm a I'm totally on board with this and I'm an artist and I, I actually I don't want any restrictions for people that might want to use my work. Maybe I believe that all cultural, you know, produce work and artwork and, you know, works uh, in general should be, you know, freely reusable, remixable, interpretable, um, you know, any way you could use something or consume something and engage with it and, and try to change something. All of that should be allowed. So um, my understanding is you'd want to say, okay, this is in the public domain. Anyone may use this. Can you say a little bit more about what the public domain is and um, how one might dedicate your your work to the public domain and, and if there are any restrictions on that? Yeah, so exactly. So the public domain is the cultural space where no one has ownership over it. So those are things that maybe someone has actively dedicated to the public domain or where the copyright protection has expired. So, you know, a Greek statue from 2000 years ago, there's no copyright protection on it. Anyone can use it to do whatever they want uh, from a copyright standpoint, at least. And it's, it's totally free for the pickings. And you can, you know, same with a, a Shakespeare play, same with uh, anything in the US that was basically produced before 1925. Um, if you create something today, then as we, as we talked about, if you create something today, then it is born closed. It is not in the public domain by default, and it won't be in the public domain until 70 years after your death. 
And so you've taken an active step to dedicate your work to the public domain. Now, fortunately, Creative Commons has come up with this great tool. It's like one of their licenses, although technically it's a public domain dedication. It's called CC0. And so you can attach the CC0 uh, dedication to your work the same way you would use, use it as a license. And you are saying, I know that when I created this work, it was born closed and it's going to be protected for my life plus 70 years. But I hereby dedicate this to the public domain and waive all of my rights and ability to control from this day forward. All right. So one of the strange things that's happening is artists and software writers, programmers, and other people are making tools that are used to make artwork. Let's say I make a tool. Um, maybe I make some new kind of digital painting software, or I write um, a machine learning library that others can use to generate poetry or plays or dances. Um, what are some of the structures around what I can kind of specify in terms of who uses that software to make artwork. If I make this tool to make digital paintings, do I own the digital paintings that other artists that use my software make? Um, is there any restrictions that uh, on the work that they make or that I can even say about what they make with my software? First off, owning the copyright in a tool does not necessarily or automatically give you ownership in the things that are made with the tool, right? If I type something in Microsoft Word, if I write a book in Microsoft Word, Microsoft does not own <laughs> my book. You know, we're using podcast recording software to re record this interview. The company that makes the software to record the interview does not own a copyright in the podcast. And so, or the, or the company that makes the editing software you use to edit everything together and, and remove all of my ums and stammers <laughs> does not own the output, the thing that you create with the tools. Now, that distinction can feel like it breaks down a little bit when you have some of these, especially some of these machine learning-based tools that, that feel like instead of a person using the tool to create a work, it's kind of the tool doing all of the work itself, and there isn't really a person involved. And there's a little bit of debate. I mean, there's, there's, there's a little bit of debate in legal world as to, you know, what should happen in that case. I think the best answer and the answer that, that is, has been the case up until now and probably will continue to be the case for the foreseeable future is that you need a person to have a copyright. And so if it is actually true that just a robot made whatever the work is, that's great. The work exists in the world. But they, the robot doesn't own the copyright. And this is actually very similar to a case that was high profile, or at least high profile in copyright legal nerd world <laughs> a couple of years ago, where uh, it was called the monkey selfie case. And it was a situation where there was a picture that went viral on the internet. And the story of the picture was that some monkeys had stolen a photographer's camera out of his bag. 
and taken a bunch of pictures of themselves because they were, uh, or they'd come up to a camera because they were seeing their reflection in the in the lens and they were kind of fascinated with it. And so they were, they were taking pictures of themselves basically. And so it went viral. The pictures were very cute. And then the photographer tried to assert copyright over the pictures and the court. And ultimately this is in the copyright office has put this in their big book of copyright rules. It's called the compendium of copyright Um, that, you know, the monkeys, the monkeys took the picture, but monkeys aren't people. And so monkeys can't have copyright. And so it feels like monkeys taking selfies is very different from uh, an elaborate AI machine learning algorithm uh, generating art. But I think the principle is the same, which is you need a person involved in order to be able to have a copyright in the first place. And there are lots of good reasons for that. Uh, one of which is if you want to use that photograph or the image or whatever is generated, you need a license from somebody. And uh, you know, a monkey can't give you a license <laughs> can enter into a licensing agreement. Uh, a robot can't enter into a licensing agreement. So there just needs to be a person for the system to work at all. What about the person that wrote the robot software? Or, um, you know, I, I guess I'm I'm trying to push at the limits here. I'm trying to figure out where does that end and the robot begins? <laughs> yeah, right. No, I mean, this is a good question, right? And, and I think it, it becomes a little bit of a fact-specific question, right? If if the person who wrote the software is really the driving creative force behind the output, then you can probably argue that the person who wrote the software is sort of working all the way through the process. If you can really draw a straight line between the person who wrote the software and the output, then maybe there's an argument for that. But in that case, the the software isn't really a tool in the sense that, you know, a word processor is a tool, right? It, it's more kind of part of the work that they are doing. And it's a tool being manipulated by the creator as as she's creating it, potentially. If the creator, if they, someone creates a, a tool and then someone else comes along and uses the tool to achieve some sort of creative output, then in that case, it probably is the case that that person who's using the tool is providing the creative spark. And so maybe they're the person who should own the copyright. And you can I mean, you can make up hypotheticals that really kind of finely, that draw really fine distinctions here. And those hypotheticals will probably pop up in reality <laughs> over the next couple of years. But I think you still get to a situation where the fundamental question is, who is the person who is, who is ultimately responsible for the creative spark behind this specific work? Uh, I mean, one thing that I talk to people a lot about is this idea of when you're thinking, when you're making these decisions, try and empower the good users and not spend a lot of time trying to limit the, the bad faith users, right? Think about who you want to be using this and how you want them to be using it and put in place the licensing structure that allows them to do it. With Michael's words in mind, I got in touch with some of the team behind the ML5.js library, which describes itself as a tool to make friendly machine learning for the web, a neighborly approach to creating and exploring artificial intelligence in the browser. I talked online to two of the organizers who both got involved through their connection to NYU's ITP graduate program and their connection to Daniel Schiffman, a member of the Processing Foundation and a professor in the university. 
My name is Joey Lee, and I am currently a senior software engineer at the New York Times. Um, my name is Ashley Jane Lewis. I'm a new media artist, a creative technologist. Currently, I'm also managing a design, art, and technology incubator in Toronto. Can you tell me what ML5.js is? ML5 is a software, and it is also a community of people who are interested in machine learning on the web. Cristobal Valenzuela, who was a student at ITP, he had this idea like, what if we could create a wrapper around the TensorFlow.js API and make it super easy to load pre-trained machine learned models and, and like use them in the context of like creative coding. We basically went from a situation where it was really hard to do any of this kind of like computer vision stuff um, at all. And then it made it, ML5 kind of made that really easy to do um, in the browser with P5.js. And um, so it was this like exciting moment where Google TensorFlow.js came out organically. It kind of grew into this really cool like software project and then this really cool community. It really started to mature, I think, when it stopped just being a software and it became this like project where we could ask and poke at these like social questions, um, especially given the context around, I mean, it was like the pandemic was happening, the BLM protests were happening. But Joey, but Joey's missing, Joey's missing like a big part of this, which was like Joey's influence because there was uh, way before the pandemic, like 2018, 2019, before we'd even like really like known that this was a looming thing that would shift the way we work. Joey was bringing forward concerns about the ways in which we were perhaps leaving like holes available for harm to take place. He's like bringing up issues that had been submitted and comments that he was finding online. And this was like also tied to, I mean, you know, I'm not really familiar with how ITP is at this particular moment in time, but at the time there were like issues around like trying to have space to discuss potential harm and machine learning and computational systems in that educational context. And so like, these were things that I was talking about in the classroom setting and Joey was talking about as like, hey, should we be thinking about how we're keeping people safe? Should we be keeping a, keeping an eye on how people feel in the community? I would say that we probably would have gotten there anyways because of the way the pandemic happened and it became like, you know, keeping people safe became like a very important concern. But like way before that, this was also like, a thing we began doing in terms of like considering what our responsibility is as people who maintain this software, you know, Joey, you should credit yourself for bringing forward for like putting some pressure into the system to try to like, you know, encourage us to have like a different headspace around what we do as maintainers. What we're, what we're kind of talking about is in like where we were landing, like historically was this time when we went from the, you know, the techno kids at the candy store, you know, everything is great. Everything is awesome. Just like peak techno positivism to a moment in which we started to look more like critically on what it is that we were doing, what we were making, like as technologists, software dis developers, designers, like, and this has like been over the last 10 years. So like, we're kind of like in this zone where, you know, books like data feminism were coming out, like the age of surveillance capitalism, like black software, you know, I think all of these, like all this literature was kind of coming. 
algorithms, algorithms of repression. Exactly. Like, uh, like you look like a thing and I love you. Like all these books, all this kind of scholarship was basically coming out. And I think it was a signal of the times, which was we're no longer in this moment when like everything is great. We're kind of in this zone of like things could be great. Things did not land so great. <laughs> and uh, why, you know, like, why did this happen? Or like, how did we kind of get here? Um, and I think that was part of this like larger like wave of people looking at, you know, you could kind of see the Gartner hype cycle in the newspaper, basically like peak hype, AI, machine learning, self-driving cars, like, you know, everything's going to be sustainable, all this stuff. And then the realization like, oh, actually, this is really hard. Or, oh, actually, all these things that were meant to be good are now being used to surveil people. They're now used to create like algorithmic bias. Like these words were no longer these like obscure academic terms. They were like now things that would kind of land in like a normal home discussion. And so I think like that coupled with like the beginnings of these discussions, like in things like software, like open source um, and just like software in general, like what are the values of the people creating software in general, like whether it was like cool, like cool libraries that you see and use like in your everyday, like React or P5 or whatever, like, or like libraries like ML5. I think like this, it became like more and more clear that those things had to be spelled out and more explicit. Like, what do you stand for? Like, what do you want your work to be used for? Like, what are the contexts in which things are appropriate? As artists and designers, like our skill is our imagination. And a lot of that has to do with like, what can we imagine using things for? And I think in this world in which we only imagine positive uses of things, then yes, you can kind of infinitely build stuff and just like hope for the best. I think it became clear that like, oh, it's time to use our imagination to also try to predict ways in which things aren't going to be used well. If your software does not have parameters around how you keep people of color safe, it's not for people of color. If your software doesn't have parameters of how you keep like queer people safe, especially in the machine learning context that is like so interested in identifying like body types and body structures, then your software is not for people who are queer. And so then when you start to ask these questions of like, who is this for? Who are we centering? The answer as you whittle, whittle it down becomes like, oh, oops, like we might be making software for like white straight people. <laughs> Whoops. And I don't think anybody really loves that as an idea, but because we're not like, you know, we're not like super accustomed to asking those kinds of questions. Sometimes we do those things without like a lot of intention, without a lot of like conscious measuring of like what we're actually doing. And so that question came up a lot as we were trying to set an intention for what, like I asked that question of the group a lot when we were setting this intention of like trying to design this new perspective, this new like, you know, outlook on how we create and maintain a community because by the very nature of not doing those things, we are designing a very, very safe, very comfortable community for the majority. We have, yeah, basically a code of conduct and a license and they are living together and each sort of inform one another. And maybe the meat of it is that the code of conduct is really something that is meant to evolve and change over time. I think one cool thing to note is that we had we approached a group of people who were doing mindful justice oriented work in other technological spaces. Um, and we asked them to review 
our documents as well. I might add, Lee, that like probably the maybe the way that I would frame it is that like we were a group of really caring, like socially oriented people and like the thing that we were bound together was this commitment to like this, like to our values, which is that like, we want to center a group of people that like historically is not centered in software because we can. That was Joey Lee and Ashley Jane Lewis, two of the organizers behind the ML5.js library, a software tool and community built around creating what they call friendly machine learning for the web, aimed at artists, creative coders, and students. Joey and Ashley do things like make bug fixes to the software, as well as serving on the teams that created a code of conduct and the ML5.js software license. I was interested in talking with them, as well as the creators of the anti-capitalist software license, because I think we're at a current moment in time where lots of creators, programmers or otherwise, are concerned about their place in the world, whether that's seeing how artists contribute to the processes of gentrification, to how someone might make an art-making tool or a cool new online community, and find that their software or their platform ends up hurting the kinds of people they had been interested in empowering. These are thorny issues, and open source software has been around for a long time, several decades now. But the desire to square our ethical concerns and how to spell out who may use our work and how, that seems to have really heated up in the past few years. As an example, the federated social media platform called Mastodon has grown in the past few years. It's, it has a few million users. We're on there at artists and hackers at post.lurk.org. And it's an incredible alternative to things like Twitter. There's no advertisements, it's a simple chronological timeline. There's no celebrities posting. There's not a deluge of instant news and angry reaction. But you might also know that the code is open source and has been used by everything from Donald Trump's own social media platform to various alt-right social media platforms. The folks behind the anti-capitalist software license, the ML5.js team and many other software creators are wrestling with just these issues. How to square one's ethics with what we put out into the world. In our upcoming episodes, we'll be looking more into these topics. We'll speak to remix artists, members of Maori communities looking to inform the world about their cultural work when it's been appropriated. And we'll look at the ways that people are creating in this new world of software and art tools, especially at the way creators are sharing and bringing new art online and out into the wider world. Thanks to today's guests, Michael Weinberg, the director of the Engelberg Center for Innovation and Policy at NYU Law, Ramsey Nasser, the co-creator of the Anti-Capitalist Software License, and Ashley Jane Lewis and Joey Lee, members of the team behind ML5.js. This season of the podcast is produced with the Engelberg Center on Innovation Law and Policy at NYU Law. My name is Lee Tussman. Our audio producer is Max Ludlow. Coordination and design by Caleb Stone. Our music on today's episode comes from the Free Music Archive. Eurorack Sesh is by Russell Butler. Ambient by Kirk Osameo. Ampex by BioUnit. Sedative by Anamoya. Kyrie Ellison by Timo Versman. We also featured audio excerpts from Citizen DJ by Brian Fu, a project he conducted in the Innovator in Residence program at the Library of Congress. 
You can find more information, episodes, full transcripts, and links to find out more about our guests and topics on our website, artisanhackers.org. You can find us on Instagram at artisanhackers, Twitter at artisthacking, and on Mastodon at artisanhackers at postlurk.org. You can always write to us on our website, and please leave us feedback wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening.